Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Our passage for the sermon this morning is John 16, and we're going to read 23 to 33. John 16, 23 to 33. This is the Word of the Lord. In that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name, ask, and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things. And have no need for anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet, I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So we've now made it to the close of these words of Jesus on on that last night, the last hours before he was crucified. Chapter 17 concludes this time with a prayer, if you look forward, it's a prayer to his father for his men and the church in all ages. Then in chapter 18, it picks up the action with his betrayal by Judas and arrest. Since chapter 13, we've been carefully looking at this final exhortation of Jesus to his apostles it started with that, that last supper, and then they let, it continued after the supper, and then they left the room, and they talked along the way um, to, the, to where they, they are now, working toward the garden. And so these words of Jesus have been, as we might expect from the Son of God, incredibly dense, uh, Really, we've just scratched the surface, and and this is the 22nd sermon since chapter 13, and it would take probably three uh, ages to to really get down to to the quick. So... 
So these are the final words of Jesus to his men, other than that prayer. Chapter 16 concludes with these words, the last words that we just read. Take courage, I have overcome the world. And I don't know about you, but when, I, when those words are read, it like, I don't know, stiffens my back a little bit. And the, um, that's the last thing he said. Take courage, I have overcome the world. The fearful, doubting, sinful, confused apostles needed to hear and believe that message especially as they embarked on their mission to carry the gospel out to the world. In the coming days, they, they are going to be overwhelmed with, with sorrow, but they would indeed take courage. They would obey this command of Jesus, take courage as they remember it, what he said to them on the night in which he was betrayed. So perhaps you are overwhelmed with what lies ahead of you. Right? I don't, I don't know all the things that lie ahead for, for you. I don't know all the things that lie ahead for me. I have a better sense of the things that lie ahead for me. Um, some of you, just waking up in the morning is a trial. It's difficult because you're, you're weighed down with something, Right? You have a hard time getting to work. The finances are not what you had hoped they'd be at this point in your life. Your children are not exactly the little angels that you'd hoped they'd turn out to be. After all, they're imitating your sin. The job you have is mundane and unfulfilling. The pain you endure every day keeps you from doing the things that you really want to do. You know, it, it even keeps you from doing ministry. Why would God give you pain and keep you from ministry? Your marriage is not the blissfully romantic ideal you had in mind. The car breaks down. It's breaking down repeatedly. And on top of it all, the hemorrhoids are flaring up again. I mean, seriously, that's, that's life for us. And I'm quoting Calvin there, so. You're confused about why all of this, and you have a hard time smiling at the future. We go from day to day fearful and trembling and confused, just like the apostles when Jesus is about to leave them. But those final words of Jesus directed to his apostles should fill you with faith, with clarity, with anticipation, especially as you suffer through life in a fallen world, right? As we all do. Take courage, he says, I have overcome the world. Uh. Let's go back and work toward that verse. Dig deeper into that hopeful reality and um, see how Jesus gets to that final statement. Jesus once again reminds them that upon his departure, they still have access to God through prayer. I mean, that has been repeatedly a theme through these 
chapters. Go to God. Ask God. Go to God in prayer, right? Though, though we do not see him, we do not see God, brothers and sisters, we apprehend him with the eyes of faith, and he hears us when we turn to him in prayer. That should be the most stupendous, glorious truth of your life. God hears your prayer, right? Turning to God in prayer often does relieve your confusion, doesn't it? We pray because we have no clue how to do this or how to get this done, what to do next, how we're going to get out of this situation. But after we pray, God provides his people with peace that surpasses understanding, as it says in Philippians 4. In that day, said Jesus, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. And every one of us is like, yeah, but. We start thinking through all the permutations of that doesn't mean this, and it doesn't mean that, and it doesn't mean this, and it doesn't mean that. And then we get all into our reformational computational matrix, and we suck the guts out of this verse. If you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. It's really getting hard to think of God as a meaning when you read verses like that. This has been a theme throughout this discourse. Jesus urges his men and us through them to pray, but we find it hard to pray, don't we? We should all raise our hands and say, yeah, it's hard to pray. In fact, we find it's, I mean, just through its frequency, we, we would rather wallow in our worry than unlock the storehouses of God's fatherly kindness to us. That's me. I admit it. So we stagnate in our worry and go prayerless, even though Jesus has told us that we, when we ask the Father for anything in his name, he will give it to us. It's true, isn't it, that the frequency, the fervency, the magnitude of, your, of our prayers reveals what we think about God, doesn't it? We really think that he prefers to withhold his blessings from his redeemed people. Like, maybe you're saved, but, you know, don't ask too much of me. We really think that God is miserly. He, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, we say, and then we think, and he keeps those cattle all to himself. Or he gives them to other people. He's not giving them to me. So let me say it again, we go prayerless even though we have this promise from the Son of God. And one of the ways we go prayerless, in a sense, is to only ask little things of God. Little things of God. Little, tiny, modest prayers. You know what we do? I mean, listen for it. We pray about our attitudes rather than asking God to change our situations. In our circumstances. 
That's a little prayer. Okay? That's a little prayer. That's a prayer that doesn't take much faith because then you can just get to work on your own attitude. The situation you can do nothing about really requires God to act. But, you know, knowing that he's not going to act, we just pray about our attitudes. Well, you're saying, well, it's a good thing to pray about your attitudes. And I say, yes, it is, and you ought to, but often praying, praying about attitude and not circumstances reveals a heart of unbelief. It just does. We pray little because we expect little. And one of the ways we do that is pray about, you know, pray that we'd, we'd have the right attitude about the fact that we can't make ends meet rather than asking God to provide us with a raise, a new job, a new home, a new source of income, blessing through inheritance, etc., etc. We make little prayers because we think little of God and little of His glory. We think little of the glory he'll receive when he answers those prayers. We really don't think God acts in the world or that he, he only acts, we, we're reformed, so we, we only think he acts on brains and attitudes. But big prayers, tangible prayers, Prayers that would require a miracle of God. Prayers for God's action in the world. Prayers for God's specific action in our circumstances bring glory to God, particularly when He answers them. A theologian, E.M. Bounds, a 19th century Methodist Episcopal Church pastor, wrote some books on prayer. And someone on my Facebook feed has been sharing them, and they've been very helpful to me. Um, we might learn from them. He wrote this, God's word does not say, I love this, God's word does not say, call unto me and you will thereby be trained into the happy art of knowing how to be denied. <laughs> Ask and you will learn sweet patience by getting nothing. And then he goes on, he says, far from it, but it is definite, clear, and positive. Ask, and it shall be given to you. And that is precisely what our passage this morning is saying. The apostles are plagued with fears and doubts and confusion, and Jesus tells them, okay, get to prayer. Get to prayer. Go to my Father. You don't even have to come to me. The Father loves you. Just go right to the Father. Ask God and he will give you what you desire. And then on top of that, he's going to heap on giving you your desire. A giant heap of joy when he answers the prayer. God answering your prayers brings God glory in the earth. He's pleased to do this and to bless his children. I mean, we, we do pray such little prayers, don't we? And, and again, that teaches us what we think about God, what we think about his glory, what we think about his promises, what we think about what Jesus said here, what we think about his power in the world, even what we think about ourselves. Like Bounds said, we ask 
and suppose that his denial of what we ask is the point and that we will learn patience by receiving nothing. Here are a few more quotes from Pastor Bounds to wake us up from our slumber and get us believing the word of Christ in this passage in John. He said this, laxity, faint-heartedness, impatience, timidity will be fatal to our prayers. Awaiting the onset of our persistence and insistence is the Father's heart, the Father's hand, the Father's infinite power, the Father's infinite willingness to hear and give to his children. He's infinitely willing to give to you. And you have not asked him. To give prayer the secondary place is to make God secondary in life's affairs, he said. He said, God is more ready, more willing, and more anxious to give the answer than man is to give the asking. The possibilities of prayer lie in the ability of man to ask large things and in the ability of God to give large things. And then one more, nothing is impossible to prayer because nothing is impossible to God. But, but, but I've asked big things and God hasn't answered those big things. Well, ask him again. Give him no rest, right? Till, till there's peace in Jerusalem. Give him no rest. So, dear brothers and sisters, it may be that we do not have because we have not asked God. Have we considered that? We, we, should, we should be blown away by what Jesus says in our passage. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. We should be ashamed of our prayerlessness. We should be, be ashamed of our unbelief when it comes to God's power and even and especially his desire. God, dear brothers and sisters, listens for your prayers. He listens for them and delights to give his children good gifts. He even gives you the desires of your heart. You know, we could get all caught up in, 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 in what we shouldn't pray for and asking for things with wrong motives, but we are reformed, and so I think we need more work on believing the stupendous fatherly graciousness of God Almighty. Right? Ask and you will receive. Pray with faith. Pray with anticipation. Pray with the character and power of God in mind. And so, if you find yourself in a mess and you haven't prayed, it's your problem. It's your problem. How could you not take that to God? How could you not take that to God? Do you really think your worry is going to sway the hand of God? <laughs> he hates your worry. He hates it. He hates your worry because it undermines his character. It tells, tells the world that God is distant and in, uncompassionate and does not give good gifts to his children. So that's the first thing we take away from this passage that God has given to us. Next, 
Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me. And I believe that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. And so what is the purpose of the Son? Ultimately, the purpose of the Son is this, to reveal the Father. That is the purpose of the Son. He's revealing God the Father. He is the image of the invisible God, right? He reveals the God that is unseen. That is what the Son came to do. Yes, there are certain things He reveals about Himself, but His ultimate goal is to reveal the Father, So remember that he said, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. The Son reveals the Father. Back in John 1, we remember these words of Jesus, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Again, that means that the the visible God, Jesus, who is with God and is God, reveals the invisible God, the Father, and the Son came to reveal the Father. Now, many claim to know God, right? Or speak of an undefined God or some source of power or some source of spirituality, but they do not accept the testimony of Jesus regarding the one true living God. In not accepting the testimony of the Son... They declare him, they declare Jesus to be an imposter, right? Uh, a, a false prophet, a blasphemer. How many people do you know who claim to have some knowledge of God, but who want nothing to do with Jesus Christ? Right? Spiritual. You know, talk about God, talk about prayer. What, what is that person's authority? What is that person's authority that says, you know, God and, and won't, won't accept Jesus? It's not Scripture, because if, if Scripture were their authority, they would say, Jesus reveals God to me. Jesus reveals the Father to me. The Father and Jesus are one. Right? They, couldn't, they couldn't escape that. And so someone who says, look, I, I love God, but I just can't do with this Jesus thing, what is that person's authority? Well, it is, as it were, their own imagination. It's inward. It's self-centered. It's subjective. It is not... They don't have a source book like the Bible. They, they just have their own subjective feelings guiding them to think that this life is better if I posit some sort of deity, higher power, right? And, and certainly a, a deity, a higher power that, that really I can control is the best of, of everything, Right? As opposed to a God I must obey. 
They think that Jesus didn't reveal the Father, but that he is like them, just revealing a subjective idea that he likes about his own personal deity. But we mustn't forget this. Jesus' testimony is that he came to reveal the Father. He, dear Christian, is the reason you have any objective knowledge of God Almighty. We have hung all our hopes on the testimony of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? That he was sent by the Father to do the Father's will, to be the image of the invisible God, to, and to bring the clear knowledge of God to this earth. Look at what Jesus says to them. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. The Father loves you because you love Jesus, and you believe that Jesus came forth from the Father. Those men who spent those three years with Jesus had faith that Jesus came forth from the Father. We have the same faith. We believe that Jesus was the Son of God and that he came and he walked on those streets of Jerusalem and built houses with his father, Joseph, and healed those who were born blind and was crucified one day by the Romans and who ate some fish with his men even after he came back from the dead on a beach. You believe this, Christian, Many do not. Many believe other testimonies. They believe the testimony of some guy who lives in his parents' basement who says that we are just an alien experiment. Seriously, a lot of people are caught up in that. Or they believe the claims of some scientist somewhere who posits a vast amount of time to explain something so complicated as our body and how it springs from heat working on amino acids or something like that. Or they believe the claims of some who say that the world has always been and we are just stuck in a cycle of reincarnations. But we believe that a personal God so loved us that he gave us his Son, His only begotten Son, so that whosoever believes in Him will be saved, will be redeemed from sin, to live forever with a glorious, loving, kind, personal, powerful, sovereign God through all eternity. We believe this that Jesus says to his men on the night before he died, the Father himself loves us because we have loved Jesus and have believed that he came forth from the Father. We do not believe, dear brothers and sisters, in an ethical system. We do not believe in a political system. We do not believe in a cultural system. We do not believe in a philosophical system or a political system. We believe in the person of God. Three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's not a materialistic system that we believe in. It's not some system. It's a person we believe in. We believe in a God of love. 
love. A God who knew what love was before anything ever existed. A God of love who created all things visible and invisible, who redeemed a fallen world wrecked by the sin of the first man. We believe in the incarnation of a Savior who came into the world and made dead men alive. We believe in a resurrected God-man who rules both earth and heaven from the right hand of his Father. We believe in the Holy Spirit who gives second birth to those once born. We believe in the testimony of Jesus Christ written for us in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Don't reduce Christianity to some system. Oh, it speaks to all those things. It speaks to philosophy. It speaks to politics. It speaks to, you know, the fact that there's a God who loved us before the world was created speaks to everything that's been created, right? I get that. But we don't believe in an ethical system. We believe in the God-man, Jesus Christ, We believe in that resurrected God-man who rules the world. And so we believe, dear brothers and sisters, in a God who is there and a God who is love. We believe Jesus came from the Father on a mission to rescue sinful creatures. We believe in a just Father who can approach, we can approach, because Jesus Christ, His Son, became our propitiation as He died on the cross. He absorbed that wrath, right? We believe in a God who trampled death, our worst enemy, when He rose from the dead three days after He died. And we believe in in the Son who came forth from the Father and came into the world. This is the core of the Christian faith. It is God's work in history. Christian, Christianity is, is, is not merely an ethical, political, philosophical worldview. Christianity is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming into the world from the Father on a rescue mission. Think about the graciousness of Jesus Christ toward the confused and fearful apostles on the day before he was doing work that he would ask his father to get him out of. It was so bad. He tells them, you have loved me. They're confused. They're fearful. They're saying all kinds of stupid things. And he says, you've loved me. You've loved me. You have loved me. And have believed that I came forth from the Father. All of Israel is rejecting him and saying he's he's a blasphemer. They're hating him. They killed him, right? But his men, his apostles, those with the Spirit, are he says, even though they're they're missing the mark in so many respects, he says, You've loved me. They know that the one before them is central to the history of the cosmos, the history of the creation of all time and space. I mean, they must have just sat back and, and, you know, when they're having breakfast after his resurrection, they they must just be thinking, this is the creator of all the worlds. And we're sitting with him 
having breakfast. I want to stay here forever. I want to hear what he has to say. I, I mean, can you imagine that? It's really so simple. The Christian faith is really so simple, but to many it remains obscure and hard to believe and ridiculous. Everything to them seems to be a scramble. Everything to them seems to be figurative language that can't be understood. But to those who have the Spirit, everything in this world becomes crystal clear. Very simple and clear. God's presence becomes clear. God's love becomes clear. God's power becomes clear. God's tender mercy to you becomes clear, right? And, and then his men are like, how do his men respond to, to his statement? They're like, oh, now we get it. And I think it's kind of humorous because I don't think they get it. But they just love him, right? And they're like, oh, now you're not speaking in figurative language, even though he just said that, you know, I'm speaking to you in figurative language, but there will come a time when I won't. And they're like, oh, now you're speaking clearly. <laughs> it's just so sweet, right? His disciples said, lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have a need for no one to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. But, but look, look, at what their, look at their profession of faith there. What are they professing to know? They're, they're professing to know that Jesus Christ knows all things, that he's God. They're professing that we don't even have any more questions. It's clear, right? There's no need to even ask any more questions. We know you're the son of God. And then finally, you came from God. You came from God. You are God and you came from God. That's essentially what they're saying here. It's starting to click. It's clicking in, right? They're getting it. I mean, what was it about what he just said that led them to such clarity? I'm not sure. But what was confusing just moments before is now clear. That's a good profession of faith. Ryle says on this verse, this is a peculiar verse. It is hard to see what there was in our Lord's statement in verse 28 to carry such conviction to the minds of the eleven and to make them see things about their master so much more clearly than they had seen before. But the precise reason why words, listen to this, affect men's minds and lay hold on their attention at one time and not at another is a deep mystery and hard to explain. The very same truths which a man hears from one mouth is utterly unimpressed, come home to him with such power from another mouth that he will declare he never heard such things before. Nay more, the very same speaker who is heard without attention one day is heard another day teaching the same things with the deepest interest by the same hearers, and they will tell you they never heard them before. <laughs> That's preaching. I mean, people tell you what they got out of your sermon, and you're like, I didn't say that. I honestly don't recall saying that. And oftentimes I haven't said that. But they're making an application and it's so striking to them that it's as if I said it, right? I mean, this happens to us all the time. And perhaps, you know, perhaps 
the whole discourse is coming around to them and they're beginning to understand these things. What it does show us is that this whole discourse meant to encourage these men had had the proper effect, right? They are now resolutely proclaiming that that they have no further questions for Jesus, that Jesus, the Son of God, does in fact know all things, and that the invisible God, the Father, has sent the Son. They're just proclaiming that. We know these things. And they certainly have more to learn, and we'll learn that from Jesus in the future by the Spirit. But nevertheless, faith is flooding into their hearts, and faith always brings courage. Faith always brings courage. Faith overcomes fear doesn't it? Calvin says this, the same thing falls within our own experience in the present day, for he who has only tasted a little of the doctrine of the gospel is more inflamed and feels much greater energy in that small measure of faith than if he had been acquainted with all the writings of Plato. Not only so, but the roads which the Spirit of God produces in the hearts of the godly are sufficient proofs that God works in a secret manner beyond their capacity. What a a beautiful turn of phrase there. The, The roads which the Spirit of God produces in our hearts. The roads, the ruts of the Holy Spirit through our hearts. Is the Holy Spirit building roads in your heart? What a beautiful way to put it. So that leads to the final Jesus' final statement, a final rebuke and a final encouragement. Do you know, do you now believe? You know when Jesus comes back with a question that it's meant to, it's, in, it's intense, it's meant to intensify things. You know, and the way we read it would change things. Do you, do you now believe? And, he, and then he goes on and he says, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. So he is preparing himself for the difficult days ahead. The, the, his men, their newly expressed faith, will undergo an assault in the, his death. They will scatter and flee to their homes. They will abandon Jesus Christ as he dies. This he prepares them for by telling them it's going to happen. He's telling them, you're gonna, I'm going to die and you're not going to be around. You're going to have fled. Do you believe now? Here's what's coming. Jesus then asserts that, <clears throat> excuse me, that their departure will not mean that his father has abandoned him. The Father will be with Jesus when all men flee from him. God cannot reject himself. And yet we know that on the cross, Jesus experienced the consequences of becoming the curse, of becoming our sin. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Would be his cry. Yet even in that cry of anguish, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He still calls his Father, my God. Jesus knows that having his father is all that he needs. He does not need any man on his side to lend him any dignity. He is God and he needs no other. He is, in other words, satisfied with God alone. We ought to be too if the whole world, every one of your family members, every one of your friends, every one of your neighbors, every one of your classmates or workmates or whoever, everyone in this nation 
should turn from God, you should not. The devil will tempt you to. Your flesh will tempt you to. The world with her selfish and godless philosophies will tempt you to, but stand firm in the faith. Take as your creed that of the psalmist. Who have I in heaven but you and besides you I desire nothing on earth. And then we get to Jesus' final words here. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. Peace in him. Inward peace. Right? Tribulation outside, outward trials. It's going to be trials everywhere. Peace. Peace inwardly. Peace in your heart. The way to heaven, dear brothers and sisters, is not smooth. So take courage. Jesus has overcome the world. Luther said, this is the good night said and the hand shaken. But very forcibly does he conclude with that very thing around which his whole discourse has turned. Let not your heart be troubled, be of good cheer. Those were the first words in chapter 13. Right? Or chapter 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Comes around again, and this time it's take courage. I have overcome the world. The fact that Jesus has overcome the world ought to fill your heart with just great joy today, dear brothers and sisters. It is true that the cares of this world seem to, to crowd out the joy of our hearts. It is true that the pains and sorrows and difficulties seem to overwhelm you. At points, and they do, it is true that the trials you are currently experiencing seem to be excruciating to you and hopeless, unchanging, right? It's true that God expects you to fight. Why else would he call you to take courage? But you ought to be telling yourself what the disciples were told by Jesus on the night before their greatest trial, their greatest sorrow, their greatest temptation. Take courage. I've overcome the world. He's overcome the world. Laugh at your troubles. I mean, just laugh at them. There's no, you know, what, what are you going to do? They can kill your body. They can't kill the soul. Jesus has overcome the world. You have a glorious future ahead, no matter what bumps you hit, right? You have to be telling yourself this, though. Satan has been cast down, sin has been atoned for, even death itself has lost its sting through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who rules earth from heaven at the right hand of his Father. Can we take courage? Can we take courage? I'll close with these words from the book of Hebrews that encourage us to take courage and not shrink back though our trials may be many and they may be intense. It says this, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one 
Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we, the next verse, take this one home, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Don't shrink back. You have faith to the preserving of your soul. Amen? Let us pray. Oh, Father, fill our hearts with courage as we contemplate who you are and who Jesus is and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us for our prayerlessness. Forgive us for our worry. Forgive us for our cowardice and our trembling. I pray that we would take courage. And that courage would lead us out the front door onto the next thing with faith. Your name be praised. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.